Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou my inheritance. That might be the best part of our service. Just singing that together and believing the reality of it. That Christ is our inheritance and what a, what a blessing that is. If you would open your Bibles, we are again in Daniel this week. Daniel chapter 9. Last week we spent some time going over Daniel's prayer. And this week we'll spend some time with the answer to it. In this super clear, very understandable, not at all confusing text. I'm glad I'm seeing some smiles. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Beginning in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again and with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Des desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half the week... He shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, we truly need your help this morning. If we are to understand anything of this text and to grow at all, we need you to be at work. So would you, by your spirit... Allow our hearts this morning to hear the gospel. Would we be shaped by it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We come this morning to one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. It's been the consternation of theologians, scholars, pastors, believers for literally thousands of years. It's also been very difficult at 3833 Gilbert Drive for a long time. 
here's the, here's the thing. I, I love my church. I want our congregations to have their questions answered. I want to do my job faithfully. I will not have time to tell you all the things that I think about this passage today. So I'm going to start by giving you an invitation. Call me. Text me. If you have something you you wonder about the end of Daniel 9, let's discuss it. I was raised in a particular way. And so I I know several different views of this text. If you want to discuss prophecy, I will discuss it. I will not discuss all the details because there's no possible way I could do that today. Even the sharpest minds that apply themselves to this passage, they typically approach it like this. Well, it could be this, 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 or this. That's not my approach. I'm going to go with this morning what I know to be the case about the text. Ralph Davis says this, if you're driving home late at night and you tune into the prophecy hour on your radio and you hear the preacher refer to what is perfectly clear in Daniel's Daniel's 70 week prophecy you know he hasn't read the text carefully end quote I completely agree with that anyone who stands up and is like here is all the clear stuff here I'm not buying it first thing we need to say is this God wants to be known He wants to be known by His Word that He has graciously given us. And when it is not abundantly clear, you can go to other portions of His Word which are clear. What struck me first this week, and I've been reading this for weeks now and thinking through it, but what struck me is something really simple that I think could encourage all of us. This is God answering prayer. This is God loving His servant. Did you you catch that in the text? He he is loved. And and He's calling out to God in confession. He's calling out in plea, not just for Himself, but for the, the nation. And God is sending Him an answer swiftly. Do you, do you understand the grace in that? Like, I think we, we tend to move beyond that. To the, the, the simple reality of the end of this chapter is God is answering prayer. Now, I doubt that, I'm not preaching that to say that you should expect Gabriel to, to come swiftly before you to interpret something hard for you or to, to walk you through your, your trial, but God answers prayer. He hears His servant. God's response in answering this surface, um, this on, the, on the surface reality for Daniel, again, Daniel's an old man. He's lived his entire life. We talked about this last week. He's lived his entire life in exile. And and again, we have another time marker. 
Daniel's under Cyrus. Apparently, power is still shifting. He's been alive long enough to see empires rise and fall. Multiple times. We know from history and from God's word that Cyrus is going to be the one to issue the decree that allow God's people to return to Jerusalem. Rebuild the streets. Rebuild the walls. Rebuild the temple. We need to remember a very, another really kind of on the surface point. All of this takes place in history. It takes place in space and time. I think sometimes we get lost in, in the reality of either the, the mundane uh, reality of life or the extraordinary. And we miss the fact that God's plan is actually unfolding day in and day out in history. All of these things that Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, these things happen. And that is good news. God is in control of history. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I get stuck in the, in the mundane of life. We go to work, we come home, we cook, clean, we wash, we rinse, we repeat. The encouraging drumbeat, I think, that's here is God is in control of history. It is going somewhere. It might not feel like it. You might feel today like pulling your hair out for whatever reason. You come to worship today in the rain. You might feel like, man, I'm, I'm going crazy. This Passages like this remind me that God is in control. He is the, he is the one who is writing history. God is in control. More than that, I would say Christ is the center of all of history, and he is the center of the word. This is certain, and I think we see Jesus here. So much ink has been spilled about the end of Daniel 9, especially in the United States. It's difficult. Much about it is confusing, but it's also glorious news. Imagine with me, and this is the way I have to think about this. Imagine that you're on the road, you're driving a car, and it's an old car. It's, a, it's kind of a broken down car. You're driving down the road, and then the engine just blows up on you. You navigate to the shoulder, to the side of the road, you're fortunate enough to have a cell phone, so you call your father and you say, Dad, I think my engine just blew up. I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. Now imagine the father comes to you and he comes swiftly to you. And the first thing he does is he, which as a dad with Children, this, this isn't always me, um, but imagine he, he just hands you keys. He just hands you keys. 
and says, here's, here's the key to your new car. Imagine that. Imagine the grace in that. And imagine that that your engine had blown and all of that, none of that is relevant. Here's your new car. Go. Continue on your way. It's just beyond what, um, what you might conceive of as possibly happening in a terrible situation. I think that is what's going on in the end of this text. It's so often perplexing to people, but what we should be viewing here is the goodness of God, His glory, His forgiveness. Daniel is worried about history. He's worried about his own life. He's worried about his people. And he's crying out, hey, my engine just blew. I don't know what to do. And God is saying, all things new. Forgiveness. Restoration. Hardship. Yes. Yes, hardship. Yeah, but even that one, in the end, is going to be crushed. Here are the keys to your new car. He answers, God answers Daniel's prayer from last week and with flooring grace. As we look at the end of Daniel 9, and um, I think we need to look at it with that lens. God is answering perplexing questions, hard questions, real questions about life. And I think the center of his answer is Jesus. The center is Christ himself. Let's remember the the context. Again, Daniel is confessing sin. What we said earlier in our confession, that's exactly the reality that Daniel is living out in Daniel 19. He's confessing his sin, the sin of the people. That is his posture. Then comes the speedy answer in verse 20 and 21. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, thinking about Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. The time of the evening sacrifice. God is not speeding his angel on the way to give him news of calamity. He's speeding his angel on the way to give him good news. Before I was done speaking in prayer, Gabriel is sent. I love that. The the sovereignty of God. He's answering your questions before you can even utter them. Before you get the thought reeling off of your brain, God knows. It's utterly amazing. Remember, it's likely that the last time Daniel had witnessed, he talks about time. Remember, he's in another empire. He is a long, long way from Jerusalem. And I would imagine the last time he saw an evening sacrifice, he was probably 12 or 13 years old. 
Now he's 80. How much did that impress upon him? That he, does, he hasn't seen the evening sacrifice since he's been home as a child. He's dragged away as an exile. He's still marking time through the Babylonian Empire, the, the Medes and the, the Persians. He's still marking time by home. He's still looking at his church calendar. He's still thinking about his brothers and sisters. He, he's, he is... He, he frames everything in his life around the worship of the Lord. The last time he saw an evening sacrifice, he was a, he was a young man. Last week, we remember Daniel read Jeremiah, wondering how long the people would remain in bondage. And he reads that they'll be in bondage 70 years. 70 is no coincidence. And this is where you get into the weeds in this text. It's, everything is about 70s. Here's what we have to think about to understand this text. I'm going to read a couple of texts from Leviticus, verse 26. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and abhorred my statutes. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. It's kind of an odd text, I know. It's, it's saying this, the land needs rest. The people need rest, generally. I'm going to read one more text. On this, on this one day, there, there has to be a, a Sabbath. On this year, there has to be a Sabbath. There has to be rest for the people, for the land. I'm going to read one more. Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Like, why are you reading Leviticus? Because I think Daniel and all these 70 times 70 and all that business is pointing to Jubilee. Why is he talking about sevens and layered sevens? He, he's talking about Jubilee. He's talking about an incredible celebration in which if you had gotten yourself in trouble, indentured servitude, basically slave, and, and you owed a ton of money, you would work for the owner. But when Jubilee came around, you would be freed and you could go home. 
The land was also to be given a break, given a rest. There's so many elements of Jubilee that God had built in for His people and they didn't do it. That first Leviticus text I read says the reason you got booted out is because you're not practicing Jubilee. You've forgotten my calendar. You've forgotten that though someone may owe, they get to go free because I, God, says so. That's what this law is all about. It's about freedom and joy for the land and the people. It's goodness. And the horn is supposed to, did you hear what it says? The horn is supposed to sound on the day of atonement. That is the day of covering. The day that we would think about the blood of Christ being poured out, atoning for our sins. I think, that, I think the 77s are utterly about jubilee. This is an announcement. This is, this is a cry by Gabriel saying, an ultimate jubilee is coming, Daniel. You've been waiting. You've been lost. You've been praying three times a day, every day, facing Jerusalem your entire life. You probably spent hours weeping every week. Your life is dominated by a desire that all things are not right and I want all things to be right and I want to go home. And then the answer comes and it's jubilee. Freedom. Back home. In in an ultimate sense. All things new. God answers prayer and he, He answers here with the announcement of Jubilee. A long time from now, Daniel, there is an ultimate liberation coming. It's coming in a person. So Daniel is repenting and asking God when he can go home and when he can again enjoy fellowship he had before he was in exile. I think many of us in this room realize the temporal nature of our lives. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But I think that's a way that we can begin to apply this. To realize that this world is not our home. That we too are exiles, as it were. Another way to put it is pilgrims. This world is not ultimate. And the speedy answer to us, whether we're having a great day, a great week, a great month, a great year, or a terrible one, is jubilee. It's Christ. It's it's a speedy answer that comes in, breaks in, and says, freedom. You You have reason to have hope. This is not the end, child of God. This is not the end. That's going on in our text. There are several, in in all of this kind of literature, there are several horizons that kind of help answer the questions being asked. There will be an answer here, one horizon we've already talked about, the little horn, right? Antiochus, Epiphanes. Yes, a little horn will come. 
and hate God's people, try to destroy worship, utterly wreck things and and, uh, sacrifice pigs on the altar in Jerusalem. Yes, that's, that's one kind of horizon. There will be another horizon that comes and things are going to look bad again. Crowds and crowds of people are going to shout, crucify him. Kill him. If that's not antichrist, I don't know what is. They will jam a crown of thorns upon his head. They will scourge him. Antichrist. They will mock him. They will nail him onto a cross to prolong his shame and execute him. Antichrist. There will be yet greater and more um, evil to come. Hatred of God's people. Hatred of the church. This is going on now in our world and will continue and will escalate. And I think we see it in these verses. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. At the end of verse 27, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I love that line. The longer I've spent in this text, the more I just want to go to the end and read it again and again and again and again. There is an end for the desolator. There is an end for evil. There is an answer by God that he will judge and punish all that's wrong in the world. So Daniel's praying. Gabriel comes speeding to him, sent by God to give him an answer. Let's take a look at the answer that God sends to his messenger. One thing to note out of the gate is that the the text isn't just about physical Israel. It's not just about a physical antichrist. It's not just about earthly kingdoms that rise and fall. It's about Christ who's coming. The prophecy is more than just sacrifice being started again. That's that's kind of the, the sense I get in his prayer. He's confessing, but the desire of Daniel's heart was hey, I want to go home. I want to be at the temple again. I want to again see these morning and evening sacrifices. I want to see, and really I I would say the longing of his heart is to see Christ, who is the fulfillment of those sacrifices. He longs to see Jesus while he's in exile. This prophecy is more than just sacrifice being started. It's, it's about true sacrifice and the, the coming of our Lord and hope for His people. 77's and the coming of Jubilee. The, the, this text is, again, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in it beginning to end. Here, here's the message. What is... What do exiles need to know? I'm going to show you some of this in the text in a minute, but what do exiled peoples need to know? What did 80-year-old Daniel, who still longed to, to be a part of the sacrifices that he had been raised in since he was a kid, what did he need to know to, to make it through another day? 
But do us, exiled pilgrims, walking as the people of God, living life differently maybe than our neighbor and thinking about things different, what do we need to know? It's Christ. We need Him. The liberator is coming. That's what Daniel hears. Yes, things are terrible. Yes, you're confessing. Yes, you've been in sin. Liberation is coming. This is not the end, Daniel. You will be free. You will go home. You will be with those that you love. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the news that you need to hear today? This is not the end. Like you in your struggle today, this is not the end. You're going to go home. Child of God, this is not the end. Exiled, this is not the end. Pilgrim, this is not the end. There's good news. Christ is coming. He has come and He's coming back. Good news. We'll look at 24 through 27 together now. Many of Daniel's visions and interpretations have prepared us for this encounter. He, he, he often moves in these visions or the ways that he portrays them to the kings or whoever's asking from general to more specific. And he does this often. It's, it's great. Um, it helps us. Um, he, he moves from these 77s to kind of, he breaks that down a little bit and moves to more specific points. Here I'm going to read um, a wooden translation. This is not mine, but it's by Ralph Davis, who I really admire and trust, especially his skill in Hebrew, and I think it's helpful. This is verse 24, and you can follow along. Seventy weeks are determined concerning your people and your holy city to bring an end to the rebellion, to seal up sins, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Notice six things. He just rattles off. It's my favorite verse in the section other than the end when the desolator will be taken down. Listen to all this litany. Transgression will be finished. And the end to rebellion. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine your own life being like that? Sins, number two, will be brought to an end. Literally, seal up sins. Three, reconciliation will be made for iniquity. Those first three are all in the negative. Literally, atone for, covering like a lid over. This always involves bloodshed. This is sacrifice. All of this, and this is what I'm saying, this is the heartbeat, all of this is pointing to Christ. Daniel, what is the answer to your confessed sin? What is the answer to your heart cry to go home? It's Jesus. Reconciliation made for iniquity. Four. Four begins with these positive statements. So we had three negative. One of the things that Christ is going to do is do away with sin. Negative. He's coming to to pay for it. Soon when we commune at the table, we'll we'll talk about his 
broken body and his shed blood. He, he is not atoning for him, himself. He is covering for our sins. Then these positive statements, everlasting righteousness will be established. Literally, it will be brought. <laughs> it's, that's a beautiful statement and it's mind-blowing. Righteousness, everlasting righteousness will be delivered. It's Christ. Five, vision and prophecy will be, will be sealed. Christ is the last word. Second Corinthians 1.20 says this, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for the glory of God. All the promises of Scripture find their yes and amen in Christ. Six, the final and ultimate expression is that the most holy will be anointed to anoint. What it's, this is kind of an odd one because it sounds like a place. All these things are going to be worked out in real time. This cosmic and ancient rebellion, this transgression of God, the need for something to be done with sin, and the only way for that to ever be corrected is atonement. The sin and transgression of the people, God doesn't just ever just take an eraser like you would on a whiteboard and wipe it off. He can't do that. He's a just and holy God. That's why the answer to his, this perplexing question about what's going to happen and he offers confession, the answer is atonement. He's going to do something about it. He's coming to do something about it. Let's just hone in on that last one for just a minute. What, is it, what does it mean, like this uh, most holy? This this is, um, this is the name of a place. Daniel would have been very familiar with it. It's the Holy of Holies. It's the, it's the inner chamber. They called it the, the most holy. It's a, it's a room where um, only one priest could go in and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's what's going on here. But he's, he's talking about this being anointed. It's... It's furniture, it's stuff, it's a, it's a room in the tabernacle, but as we read our Bibles, we understand that, no, it's actually Jesus. He is the most holy place. John 1 clearly tells us that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the incredible glory of Sinai, the burning glory of the, the bush, and the word became flesh, John 1 goes on, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's not just talking about furniture. He's talking about a person. Later in John's Gospel, we read this remarkable statement. Jesus prays in John 17, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. It sounds like something you would do for temple furniture, consecration, setting it apart, anointing it. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus himself was the set apart place. Jesus was the sanctified 
furniture. Jesus is the most holy. It's vital if you're going to understand the end of Daniel 9 that you see Christ is the answer that he's bringing. Verses 25 and 26, we hear Gabriel further explain the significance of the 77s. When the decree is made for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. From that time, this much time is going to go by. Let me read again uh, this wooden translation by Dr. Davis, 25 and 26. Now you must know and have insight from the going forth of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to an anointed one. A leader, seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it will be built again with squares and a moat, but in distressing times. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the leader who is coming will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will be overwhelming. And to the end, war is decreed with desolation. Again, we have this concept of 77s, 490 years Jubilee, we discussed earlier, there's so many things that we could focus on, but what is utterly clear is there is going to be time when hope is returned to the people of God, and then it's going to be snatched away again. Daniel is being said, yes, your people are going home. They are going to rebuild Jerusalem and its streets, but it says this weird word in there, with distress. For Daniel, who's confessing his sin and begging for answers, this had to be incredible for him to hear. It's this, you're going to go home, but it's going to be hard. You're not going to be all the way home yet. Yes, you're going to rebuild streets. Yes, you're going to see the temple rebuilt. But just go read Ezra and Nehemiah and see how satisfying it was for them. Not great. They, they struggled. They wept aloud when the second temple came up. It's going to be difficult. Think about the church. Yes, you're going to, you're going to be the people of God on earth, but it is going to come with tremendous difficulty. You will have hardship. Like verse 24, there's another feature of this that points to Jesus, this anointed one will be cut off, but not for himself. An anointed one, this is the way they thought about their kings and sometimes, occasionally, their priests. So there there will be an anointed one, a kingly one, who will be cut off, but not for himself. That should blow you away that it's that clear. That is what's coming, Daniel, as an answer to your question. It made me think about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Utterly, utterly righteous, like a lamb who's done nothing wrong, led to slaughter, cut off, not because he deserves it. As we commune today, please remember he was cut off broken body, shed blood, not because he deserved it. He was cut off for us. As 
week I've tried to put myself in Daniel's shoes. He was way more perplexed, I believe, about any of this than we are today, even though um, he, he knew so much. But we know the Messiah has come. We know what all of this is about. In, in clarity, we have God's word telling us all the beauty and the treasure that exists here. It's all happened. Even though things look terrible, the people of God have a Messiah. We have a true home. Homegoing may be hard. The text says there will be distressing times. Yet the city is coming back. I think this is the experience of every honest Christian I've ever met. There will be distressing times, but we're pilgrims. This is not the end. There will be distressing times. If you're here and not being honest with yourself, I'm gonna tell you to wake up a little bit. Distress is here. The word of God is not going around it. This answer to Daniel is not going around it. There will be distressing times. But that does not mean God is finished. Far from it. As we read Daniel 9, many are tempted to get sidetracked by time markers and miss the overall beautiful point. Despite the struggle, despite the chaos, despite the exile, despite the intense longing that we feel to be home, God is not done. He's not done. He's written the end of history. One commentator notes, both in the flow and sometimes the fury of history, God keeps his people intact, end quote. I love that quote. That's the way history is. Sometimes it flows and sometimes it's fury. He's not done. He's not, God is not done with us. Last point we'll make on 26 is the death and resurrection of Christ. Along with that incredible event comes war. In 70 AD, we know that Titus will destroy the Jerusalem and the temple brick by brick. The church of God is scattered and as they are continued to be scattered to this day. We also know that while that terrible thing happened, exactly what God told Daniel, terrible things, good things, we know that when that terrible thing happened, the gospel went out. Christians went out and went all over the world. Terrible things, sitting side by side with incredible things. That's the answer that God is giving to Daniel. You and I are living in an era of God's people. His kingdom is going out. Yes, desolations come and go. But the gospel is spreading all over the earth. The nations are coming to know Christ. They're hearing good news. This church is involved in several missions, both in this town and around the world, to effect that very end. This exact thing that God is telling Daniel It's God's mission, and we're joining him in it. 
So as we come to um, verse 27, we'd be wise to again note the whole. Verse 24 covers this whole period. 25 divides 69 sevens. 26 describes the final seven in, in kind of indefinite terms. And 27 uh, describes the final seven with a, a bit more clarity. Again, this wooden translation. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he will make sacrifice uh, and offering stop. And on the wing of abominations will come one causing desolation, even until the predetermined destruction is poured out onto the desolator. I love this wooden business. It really helps me think through the text. This is a bad guy. This is a real bad guy. This is like the, the little horn that we saw earlier, only jacked up. And he, he's doing things like he, he's, he's presenting himself almost like a Messiah. I think it's interesting that it uses, he's making covenants. It's, it's like he, he, he's playing God. It's really scary when you consider the nature of this enemy. And the connection between 26 and 27 is this, conflict is not going to stop. The end of Jerusalem isn't the end of conflict. We, we see so many places in Scripture where idolatry continues. The great enemy of God and his people will continue to impose idolatry in the last week. Abominations will continue against God and against his church. A final ruler of abomination will one day impose his authority and will make covenant and make promises. It'll be religious in nature and he's going to push to be worshipped. All this stuff is about worship. Who do we worship? He will, in the end, run into the one who will ultimately overthrow and destroy him. He will rise, but he will lose. But we see little micro versions of this today. Like, yes, we're waiting on one to come, but do you, do you not fight in your heart to, to keep from idolatry? Is, is, are we sitting around like clicking our fingers, waiting one day idolatry will come? No, we're dealing with this today in our own hearts, with our eyes, with our ears, with our mouths, in our careers, in our relationships. We're dealing with it today. Yeah, there is a sense in which an ultimate will come. But that doesn't mean you don't deal with it. And it doesn't mean that I don't deal with it. Understand, look for the answer that he's giving. Christ wins. What does Daniel need to know? That through sacrifice, the people are going to return through. Though their worship will be distorted in the future, a predetermined plan is poured out. Judgment is going to be poured out on this bad guy. Christ wins. A couple of points of application, and I think we could, we could go on for a long time, and I'm not going to do that to you. You and me, we are called to a long obedience. Eugene Peterson put it like this, a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is long. And it's not always easy. 
It is ours to, to simply try to live life in exile. We are taught to pray. We prayed it earlier. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will not see that perfectly lived out in our lives. We will not see that exact one-to-one until glory. But it's to be our desire. The center, second application, the center of all of history has already been sealed. It's already written. He wins. This should be good news. Especially on a rainy afternoon, this should allow us all to go home and take a nap. It's, It's over. He wins. That's his answer to Daniel. Isn't that good news to hear today? He wins. So much more we could say about the end of Daniel 9, but um, one evening about the time of the evening sacrifice, this old man was longing and God sped an answer to him. And the center of that is Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to answer all your longings. I'm going to answer you in exile. I'm going to answer you with a person. Isn't that good? I know there's so much more that we could say, but really the only question is, do do you know him? Do you know the one that God sent Gabriel speeding with this answer? Do do you know what the, the substance of that answer? Do you know him? Are you known by him? He he knows all of history. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's uh, it's challenging and difficult, but um, one thing is very clear, uh, clearly going on here, um, atonement. You, Christ, are the answer for Daniel's sin, for the sin of the nation. You're the answer for us. May we believe it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.